two minutes into the hour of five o'clock. It's time for This Week in Moab, and I'm your host, Christy Williams-Dunton. Very excited to be on the air and have some important things to talk about tonight. A lot going on with the city of Moab. We're going to talk about some of it with one of the newest ones on staff, Sustainability Director Alexi Lamb. Very excited about that. Also going to be speaking with Amanda Madden at about 5.30 this evening about a wonderful showing of a film, A Spell for Queer Home. Also talking with Dave Carrier about an initiative to work with the taxes and really attack the problem of fossil fuels and climate chaos. That's for This Week in Moab here on Juneteenth, 2023. Alexi Lam to the KZMU studios. Thank you for coming up today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's make sure that those v- volumes are just right and bring it closer to your... <laughs> there we go. Yes, that? so, uh, that's much, much better. So welcome to the post of sustainability direction in Moab City. Tell us a little bit, introduce yourself for the listeners. Sure. Um, I have, I started in Moab uh, October 1st of last year. So uh, we're closing out my last season that I haven't experienced here yet, summer. Um, I've worked on sustainability for about 10 years. Um, Prior to this, I was up in Logan, Utah, and I'm from Arkansas originally. Where in Arkansas? Uh, Northeast Arkansas, about an hour from Memphis, Tennessee, Jonesboro. It's a lot of rice fields. (laughs) <laughs> wow, fantastic. And so uh, there's a lot to appreciate about the differences in Moab, Utah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Explaining hu- the differences in humidity when people come to visit is uh, definitely something. Um, I, a lot of reminders to drink water. <laughs> yes, indeed. And and probably water is one of, if not the, top um, point of attention for sustainability here in the West, is it not? I, I would say it's among the things that I hear about the very most, um, and it's something that the city has worked a lot on with different plans, water conservation plans, water management plans, things like that, because uh, water is important in the desert. It's important everywhere, and it's especially important to us. And in fact, that's one of the things we really want to talk about. There are so many, just even defining sustainability and resilience and what the context is now and how you, as a director, uh, grapple with that because it's sort of a oh a moving target isn't it yeah I mean we're always learning new things and we always wish we knew more right like people always want more studies more data um, but we have to act on the information we have now as well right because we can't wait until we have the, the perfect amount of information sometime in the future because we're facing uh, issues of water scarcity, water abundance sometimes, and flash floods. Like mm-hmm. Those are things that we're doing now, so we have to figure it out with what we have and, and this, keep looking. And the stakes of inaction are 
really high. The more time we put it off, the harder it gets, yeah? Sure, right, because uh, it's a decision to do something, but it's also a decision not to do something. And at this point, you know, it's great as we get more information to make even better, like more informed decisions. But, right, we we want to... Um, make Moab a good place to live for the people who are here now, not just putting it off to some point in the future. And right, like if we don't address issues that we acknowledge and we see happening right now, they can be even harder to address in the future. And that's probably what brings the city to asking Moab to comment on a proposed water-efficient landscaping ordinance. Mm. Uh, Is this one of the things that you have brought forth? Uh, this started a while ago, really. Uh, August of 2021, um, at the time, the city entered into a, kind of a partnership with the Western Resource Advocates and Water Now Alliance to try to look at our uh, local like codes and our, our current landscape standards and try to evaluate those for water conservation. And so updates... Uh Resiliency, comfort, safety, sustainability, these are all the things we're hoping to, um, that landscapes can contribute to. Uh, It's been just forever that the very thought of a landscape meant the big green lawn, even xeriscaping using blue grass grass or, uh, you know, water, uh, not thirsty grasses. Mm Mm-hmm. This proposal wants to incentivize pulling those out entirely in a way, don't they? Uh, it's, so I think it's important to start with, like, landscapes serve different purposes. So this particular landscape ordinance is addressing um, different kinds of properties and developments that we're doing. So it won't specifically address, let's say, a golf course or a uh, a soccer field, like areas where we have active recreation that have uh, turf grass that are you that are in active use. Those have different water management strategies. So this is aiming more at water management strategies that we would see in like a, a house or a new hotel coming in or things like that. Um, that said, it does definitely affect uh, what we would say cool season turf grass and like a lawn in somebody's front yard or in a new development. It's it's going to limit it to 10% or about 200 square feet, depending on uh, the situation. So this is when you're talking about enhanced separations between these land areas and the uses there. A uh, big difference between residential properties that are adjacent to commercial ones. So buffering, mm-hmm. fences, plants. Uh, describe a little bit about those standards. I can see uh, what they may include, what the proposal is, um, mulch requirements, for instance, and water conservation is probably where people start clutching their mm. pearls a little bit. But but it's got a good reason. So sure. tell us what right. the idea is. Well, as you kind of got to earlier, there are a lot of different benefits to landscapes. Some of them are visual, like it's pretty, um, and we have an abundance of that here. Uh, Some of them are safety in terms of what can people see or not see or where are we directing attention, and some of them are, you know, sustainability, resiliency, things like that. Um, Within this, we have new standards for screening and buffering, so that would be like separating different types of properties, like a high-density property versus like a low-density residential, that sort of thing, and trying to separate those in a way uh, that would visually separate them and also try to like 
dampen the sound that might happen between different types of uses. Um, so screening and buffering involves like fences and also uh, vertical and horizontal space that might be filled with some landscape. And that relates to water in that we want to require enough to make a difference, but not so much that we're requiring people to dump a lot of water in a space separating properties. Uh, and then there's also landscaping standards that are more general that would apply even if you're next to another property of a similar sort to your own. Um, and that would be like uh, putting trees in the city right-of-way, things like that. And those help with like cooling down a hot summer day when you can walk on a sidewalk in the shade instead of out in the sun. Not to mention helping um, propagate more oxygen in a very uh, fossil fuel using mm -hmm. Uh, zone. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, and plants even like kind of catch dust in the leaves and things. Um, so they also can catch some of the, like when we have the winds coming through and things like that, it can kind of pull some of the dust out of the air. So it does a lot of things to make our city like a pleasant place to be. I have read that trees do their best work when they're close to the source of the CO2, meaning medians in the middle of a highway actually a wonderful place for that job to happen. Uh, I have a hard time imagining Main Street Moab and Highway 191 doing that because it's a highway. Mm -hmm. uh, we have no planned trees to go in, in the middle of that road, but there are some, you know, changes happening in different other roads where there are opportunities for islands or at least trees that line the street. Oh, nice. And that's one of the cases where we're trying to emphasize landscapes where they're useful to us. So we're not putting water on landscapes that are not important, right? Trees take water, um, but they're also really valuable. So in some cases, right, it's maybe less grass um, using the water and, and more trees. The example of then and a water efficient ordinance for the landscaping. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm looking at a couple of the ideas, a minimum of 25% live vegetation. Yeah. Uh, the thought behind that is that vegetation has a lot of benefits. Um, like trees, having greenery can kind of cool down a landscape. It also, the roots stabilize the soil. And as we've seen with some rain events here, uh, it's important to have roots in the soil, stabilizing that, reducing erosion. So having some plants... Uh, in our landscape rather so the most efficient landscape might have zero plants in it right but that's not going to be the best landscape for like us to live in and it's probably not the kind of thing that we want to jump wholeheartedly into getting rid of plants they have so many other benefits so having a 25 percent minimum the idea is that Plants have plenty of benefits, and we want to have those around. Um, and then people have choices after that. They, it's a minimum, not a maximum. And then uh, I can see a lot of it is just sort of um, wise water use and that you're trying to incentivize that uh, because it's now an ordinance and we're – it seems like there's sort of a focus on uh, residential properties where people who are building and maybe even changing their landscapes to adapt mm. to a changing climate a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, so two things that are related to that. It, um, one is uh, it's set up so there's different kind of levels of uh, 
coming into compliance. So people wouldn't have to immediately overnight change their landscapes. Um, and then even once they're into the process of looking at this ordinance, if you want something kind of low level like a building permit, then there are two paths. Um, one is more prescriptive. So it would just be like, okay, I hit the plant minimum. I hit the grass um, maximum, those sorts of things. Uh, and then there's also a water budget option for people who want a little more flexibility, creativity with what they're putting in their landscape. Um, in which case, it's just saying, this is how much water is allowed. And then within that, you have more flexibility to decide what you want in your yard. And a bit of a, a sort of time understanding that it doesn't have to be immediate for people that have a very established landscape they're not going to be required to pull anything out. There's, there's, in effect, a, a little bit of a grandfathering in to not... You, you would end up coming, like, starting to comply with it, um, either if you needed a permit for something, and then the city would look at your property and see if it's meeting the current code. The other time I would think that people would do this um, voluntarily in particular is uh, uh, something that is just fortunate that happens to be going on at the same time we're doing this is the state has an incentive for people who are thinking about taking out some cool season turf grass, grass in their lawn, and haven't quite figured out how to make it work yet. So they're also, they have a turf buyback program, like $1.50 per square foot. And once the city uh, adopts a water efficient ordinance, we actually meet their criteria for this. So residents would then qualify to participate in the state program as well. Oh, great. And this, again, is a proposed ordinance. It's not like a big heavy-handed deal. This is just from the responsibility of the city to say, look, we're going to face this thing. Mm -hmm. Here's our first proposal. Yes, yes. We really want feedback. Um, it's gone to, it, it kind of went to the city council and the planning commission early on. It's gone back to them uh, in the planning commission. Three times they had a public hearing and then tabled it because they wanted to hear what people think. We want this to be practical for our city. So we would love feedback if people want to give it to us. Um, on the sustainability page of the website, there's a survey people can take and just provide their thoughts on how this would work for them. I understand that uh, the planning staff hosted an info table at Arts and Ag uh, Friday last to answer questions about this. Did you have some people coming up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we answered questions. It was a lot of fun to talk to people. And um, we hear a lot of concerns about trees in particular, which makes sense here. Um, and I think we want to hear from people who care about trees and anything else. If you have other thoughts or people have thoughts, it would be great to hear those too. Well, thank you for talking a bit uh, about some of these major components of the proposed code update and uh, clarifying a little bit. It looks like we're right up against the deadline about the survey for mm -hmm. that commentary. So uh, asking residents to provide input, five-question survey, it doesn't sound like it's too heavy mm -hmm. of a lift, but by the day after tomorrow... Yeah, so the Planning Commission, after they tabled it, the next time they'll be able to hear it is this coming Thursday. Um, what they will have the option to do at that point is they can send it on with a recommendation to the council. So even though we would love to have the feedback now to inform the Planning Commission's decision, it is still not final at that point. It will still go on to the uh, city council. So if for some reason people can't get it in by that date, um, 
which would be ideal so the planning commission can see the feedback, we can still take ideas even after that date. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alexi Lamb, the sustainability director for the city of Moab, for whom this uh, is only just one aspect of the question of sustainability for the city of Moab. What else are you excited about? Where are you setting your sights beyond the question of water Mm. efficiency? Yeah, one of the things that's pretty fun right now is I know people have heard about the city working towards becoming a dark sky community and I think I thought we already were right exactly it's been going on so long it feels like we are and the parks around us they all are and we've been working on it a long time Uh, but my predecessor did this uh, light demo um, last February and the the feedback came back that it was um, possibly like a little too co- cool color, like a little too blue, that maybe it was too bright and people were concerned about light trespass. So we went back to talk, talking to our, our power provider, Rocky Mountain Power, about what the options are. And some things we can change and some things we uh, can't. But the nice thing is that we have a way to go forward. We're going to test out some house side shields and some street side shields, which would depending on where you're located, possibly block a light across the street or maybe the light coming from a light that's in your front yard. So we're trying to address those concerns of like, we don't want the lights to be too bright. We want them to be bright enough that it's safe, but not so bright that it's keeping people up at night. Um, and the shields would help with some of that light trespass. So we're going to try some of those things out. Uh, I could s- probably in the next few weeks, and hopefully we'll have a good path forward then to actually finally, as a community, become dark sky friendly. I'm I'm really glad to hear it because where I live over there in Castle Valley, I can say that when I first moved there, there wasn't so much light pollution. Okay, it's been a long time. We're talking <laughs> decades now, but now there is. There's a great deal of it. Uh, and even if you're out there doing one of these uh, wonderful events like happened this weekend, uh, the dark sky, sky star watching mm-hmm. thing, um, you can really see you can really see far with the um, with the light pollution. I'll call it so. Right? Yeah, we're the sky glow, like Moab or the the populated areas. We're the sky glow in the distance when people are looking at stars. And um, I think that going on this path will be great going forward. It'll help us not get brighter and over time get dimmer. And in terms of sky glow, not in terms of what we have. (laughs) We want useful light on the ground and we don't want to send light up towards the sky. And that's a great way of mitigating it uh, altogether. It seems like there is a light ordinance for commercial buildings that's been on the books for quite some time Mm -hmm. are you seeing pushback or people have has the attitude changed a little bit about needing to go blaring with the uh with the (laughs) signage for the most part uh the things that are coming through right asking for permits and are putting uh meeting the new code uh they are finding ways to there's a lot of dark sky compliant fixtures because it's not limiting the brightness of, let's say, the you know safety lighting and things like that at the door. It's just asking it to face down and not up for the most part. So it, it's actually not been too bad in terms of the, the city management. That, uh, the new uh, developments or new buildings and things that are coming in can largely find fixtures that are facing downward and providing the light they need where we need it. I'm going to ask you one more question, and that is, 
when you look forward um, into this sort of near medium term five year planish, what worries you? What worries you about sustainability in Moab? And you can go broad, whatever the context is. Yeah. Um, I think two things, right? Future is unknown. Climate change is happening now. Um, and we're managing as it comes. And I think we need to get ahead of that. And I think kind of a we we are working on a sustainability plan and one of the things that we had was this like venn diagram of opportunities and challenges but almost everything ended up in the middle right it was like an opportunity and a challenge and i think we have to be careful to look at those things like we have so many motivated people in moab who want to do things and that is an opportunity and i just think we need to not get in our own way and and move forward wonderful I'm thinking you could always use some helpers. Absolutely. Uh, if somebody was going to volunteer their ample free time, how would they get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, you can email me uh, at the city, or and my email is on the sustainability page of the website, uh, A-L-A-M-M at moabcity.org. And we are also looking for people to be on the technical advisory committee for that sustainability plan. So if people feel like they have experiences and expertise, they should reach out. Alexi Lamb, a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for making things so clear. Thanks for Thank coming up. Thank you so much for having mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. You know, I I am going to just do a little bit of a segue by saying the city of Moab is also, speaking of planning and facing into what's uh, going on, they're accepting applications uh, for two openings on the Moab City Planning Commission members of the Planning Commission have to be Moab City residents. Uh, but if you have an interest in how things have developed the way they have, if you're the kind of person that sits around the kitchen table and says, we should have done that bypass 25 years ago, you could be the one. In fact, it's not even completely voluntary anymore. There is some, I think, $75 per meeting that you attend, uh, which is pretty cool. It it helps mitigate that time and money issue. Uh, it's an advisory capacity for most of those city land use decisions, like in uh, Alexi's case about coming to the city council and with the feedback, and then they will stamp it. So you're not necessarily legislative, uh, but advisory to the legislative. If you're interested, you want to send a letter of application to uh, C. Shirtleff, that is C-S-H-U-R-T-L-E-F-F at moabcity.org. You can also always, I think, give them a call, Moab City Planning Department, they're great, Um, 5129, as we would say it in very local terms, 435-259-5129. Alexi, since you're already here and the mic is still live, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I think it's a great opportunity if you want to weigh in on things like uh, dark skies, like water conservation ordinances. Uh, We get great feedback from the Planning Commission, and it really shapes the way these things take uh, take form. So uh, if you've got ideas, it sounds like a great place to uh, put those for me. Well, I will say, (laughs) did you listen to the last show, Art Talks? I walked in during it. Walked in during it. It's funny how much planning and zoning comes up. When you're talking about something you think has nothing to do with it, 
one of the questions was how could we make it a, a more oh facilitative space for the arts to thrive and a good point was brought up that it's not such a walking city and so uh, planning and zoning fits right into that are there any ideas going forward about how to make it a more walkable space and how to work with the fact that we have a highway mm. running right through town? Yeah, I, I think two things. One, that when new developments come in, like when we're working on King Creek Boulevard, things like that, as, as the streets change, we have opportunities to put more in, like multi-use path and a bike, tri- bike lane are both planned there. Uh, and then the other one is that we are also doing a parks plan that involves some of our trails. Um, and that's also kind of an opportunity that we have that's unique here is that we have this trail system. And if we can connect more of them, then we'll be able to get through town better by bike or by foot. Oh, and I happen to know somebody that likes the idea of putting uh, sculptures along those trails. So we'll talk about that another day. Mm, I like that <laughs> idea, too. Thanks, Alexi. Thanks. Coming up next, we are going to move into a conversation uh, once again about spaces and how we can cast spells for those spaces, specifically for Queer Home. Spell for Queer Home is a film that's going to be shown at the Mark this Thursday at 6 p.m. Welcome, Amanda Madden filmmaker for A Spell for Queer Home that is happening at uh, 6 p.m. this Thursday at the Moab Arts and Recreation Center. Amanda, wonderful to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. You are a filmmaker. Do you always, uh, when did you get involved with making film? We'll just start there. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, since I was a little kid. <laughs> I've always been making films. Have yeah. you really? And what kind yeah. of, uh, did you start with like Super 8? You look very young. I started with a, um, I saved up for a camera in sixth grade, and it was a high 8 camera. Do you remember those big tapes? Yes. <laughs> um, so that was my first camera, and I started just making films then, little short films, and yeah, been doing it. For 30 years now. <laughs> it's a really big deal, this story that you're telling, and it has so many wonderful uh, nuances. The screening of A Spell for Queer Home is uh, a new short experimental documentary by yourself. I'm reading that it's braiding together embodied exploration, itself a wonderful uh, thought form with the words embodied exploration stories and wisdom from queer and trans folk across the country and original spell songs so intriguing uh, a meditation and a reflection on the question what does it mean to be at home as a queer person there are several questions that you have embedded in this uh, in this film like around home how do we know when we're there when we've arrived how do we cultivate and uh, create it? How do we know it in our body, our our soul home, that it's happening? Such wonderful questions. Uh, this Thursday, there will be opportunities in addition to seeing the film at the screening to connect with local queer justice organizations and performances by local queer poets and musicians. So a, uh, a really f- wonderful opportunity. Uh, but let's, let's roll it back a little bit and go back to this question about this meditation about 
home and a spell for home. I find all that so intriguing. Uh, how did you come to this? A spell? Mm. Mm, yeah, thank you. Um, I grew up in Utah and then I lived in, I moved away and I lived in New York City for 11 years. And that was where I came out as a queer person and really found myself. And then in 2020, I moved back to Salt Lake City. It was sort of a pandemic move. And I was really looking for queer community when I looked, when I moved back, I was really searching for queer community. And I was really um, sitting with this question of how do I feel at home and how do I feel a sense of belonging as a queer person in this place? And so um, I learned about Cisco near Moab, the ghost mm-hmm. town. Um, and the artist residency that Eileen started there. And I, it felt like the perfect place for me to kind of explore these questions. So I went down in the summer of 2021 and I filmed for two weeks and I just let myself explore. And that's what I mean by embodied exploration is I really let myself be with those questions and move them through my body. And I filmed all of that and then did these interviews with these 18 different people, queer and trans people across the country and asked them sort of their perspectives on queer home and then worked with composers over the next, um, you know, did the edit over the next year and then worked with uh, these three composers to create these spell songs. And yeah, this question of a spell, I mean, I'm really interested in casting magic. I really, I really think film is a, um, sort of a, an appropriate uh, vessel for magic because it combines so many different forces and, and it's so collaborative. And it's, I really believe in the sort of greater than the sum of its parts magic of film, um, as well as like having events like this event that we're gonna be having on Thursday with performers and poets and advocates and activists. And I, I think that, that the evening is gonna be so special and to have it not just be the film, but be this whole community um, is, is magical to me. I think we're gonna feel it in the room. I really do. And I, I really believe that if we can feel it in the room, then we can start to build home for each other. We can start to create networks of care and networks of abundance and, and support um, so that, you know, all queer and trans people do feel a sense of belonging and a sense of enoughness and a sense of homefulness. It's sort of an immersive somatic alchemy that can happen when you are, doesn't even require a, Uh, theater when you're watching a movie even just netflix chilling or not it is something that feels so uh yeah you can really feel the emotions that that build and they can really transform you it's not just the images it's the gestalt of the whole thing yeah yeah so how do you know when you have arrived there's a lot of talk about safe spaces now because there is so much threat to those safe spaces. Uh, how do you know when you've arrived? It's such a good question, and I and and the film is really about that. And every you know every person in the film has a different answer to that question. Some people have you know really found their sense of home in their own bodies. Some found it with friends who. Uh, they felt like they could just be their uninhibited self in front of and not perform in any way for the first time. You know, some some pe- people found it in all these different ways and continue to find it. And then um, I think for me, 
I, I have known that I've arrived in queer home through the process of making this film because I have, this film in itself has been a queer home to me. And, you know, I'm really interested in film being this sort of transformative process. And when I started, I I really only had questions (laughs) and I had a lot of loneliness and, now I am on the other end of this process. I really look around and see that I, I have a community. You know, I think um, even just connecting with the Moab community for this event, like I, I just the easefulness and the sort of magic and like enthusiasm and that like that came together. That is a queer home to me. You know, and I think we have to remind ourselves that it's happened before. It will happen in the future, and it is already happening you know, and we we can kind of tap into that to all sorts of queer homes all the time in the smallest of ways. And I think, um, yeah, so I'm really, I feel like Thursday is going to, I hope that it is a queer home for us for mm-hmm. the night. The conversation and the terminology has shifted so much in a rather short period of time. In the olden days, in broader culture, it was proposed in this way about tolerating people of difference, however that might be defined. And today, we're talking about casting spells for creating a safe space. We don't really even use the term accepting anymore, do we? Uh Do you find that you were having to really stretch your language around this? Uh Or... That's so interesting. I mean, I think it's beautiful that we're moving out of a space of of just to, of tolerance and acceptance. You know, I think um, we're moving into something far more vast and complex, and that is really beautiful to me. And just the way that, like, you know, gender is not a binary, and and as I would say, like I like believe it's like not even a spectrum. It's like a whole constellation in the sky. Yeah. Um, so many things are like that, you know. And so I think we are, we're finding the words for it. We will find the words. People have found the words before, and um, and regardless of that process, it's it's still happening, and it's still and it still sort of connects all of us. It is kind of exciting. There's a evolution underway. And and I don't think we could have this conversation without also mentioning the kind of really peculiar uh, moment politically that mm-hmm. this yes, film is happening uh, within. What do you want to say yeah. about the context of this time politically? Yeah, yeah. I, I think about that all the time. Um, you know, I think we our communities are being really viciously and violently attacked the trans community and the queer community right now and um we are seeing that politically and i think um i think in that moment there is the potential for uh for us to feel so much hurt that then we don't know what to do with so much hurt and sometimes we come at each other, you know? And I think that this is a moment where we really, 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 really need to hold hold each other and turn towards each other and really try to like lean away from perfection and lean into um, care, 
and and turning towards one another when it gets hard because it's it's really hard right now and it's really scary especially in utah and you know other states like like utah and um so i guess i just want to say that this film for me is is a call to action for us to turn towards each other and to believe that we are enough and to know that we can find and create a home for one another and for ourselves that that is possible um yeah stories and wisdom and rich questions from amanda madden who is the filmmaker of A Spell for Queer Homes, some of which came out of an exploration right out here at Cisco, which must have been some fun. You felt stretched by that, didn't you? Oh, it was so fun. It was amazing. I loved it. I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's. I, I have a little fact for you since you lived in New York. Uh, Manhattan Island is the same size as the Valley of Moab. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't realize that. But with, you know, millions, millions, millions less people. Uh, So the space that we share and how much of it we're able to expand, how much space we're able to take up. uh, There's a real difference between New York and uh, even even just Salt Lake. When you came back. okay. so I'm really interested in that trajectory. You you went off to New York when you were, what, 20? I was, yeah, just out of college. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a, and a big blooming, I can assume. Yeah, yeah, I was never out as a queer person in Salt Lake before before that. That must have been, I, I, I'm not even going to put words in your mouth at all, but I can just imagine how having... Uh, had your experience in New York and then coming back. Gosh, I want to hear all about that. How yeah. did that, how'd that go for you? It was, a, it was a different town than you expected. Were you a different person? So it was a different place. Both. I mean, <laughs> both we had to re-meet each other. I think the city and I did and the in, in Utah and I did. I think I, um, when I left New York, because it was in such a time of crisis during the pandemic, um, and I had been there for so long and I had found all these parts of myself there. I kind of had this weird worry in the back of my head that I was going to leave New York and somehow my queerness was going to get left behind, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like the important parts of me were going to get left behind there. And um, that motivated a lot of the, you know, the sort of questions around this film. And I think what I've realized now and in the process of making this film is that nobody can ever take queerness away from you. You know, no place can ever take it away from you. It's it's with me all the time. You know, I it's not. Um, this is this is like rooted deeply into who I am, and I know that so clearly now, and I can trust that. You know that that it can't be taken away. So, um, the I think when I moved back, there was some navigation between uh, and negotiation between the landscape and between myself as a queer body. And we had to figure each other out again, you know, and this film kind of um, encapsulates that and kind of shows that, like, as you said, that somatic experience. And so you're really trying to invoke uh, the words and the sounds and the movements that uh, help shore up or build the home itself in the body and in the community. Spell songs. 
talk about talk about that just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I worked with um, three original composers who are friends and amazing artists, um, Amelia Deal and M. Wexler and Orion Johnstone. And they um, they all created music for the film. And I do think of the songs as spell songs. Most of the music is instrumental, but Orion created two pieces that have these sort of um, chants almost. Mm. And those are two really pivotal moments in the film, sort of turning point moments. Um, and I think the music kind of, it kind of holds all these pieces together because there's a lot going on, you know, with 18 different voices and these visuals and music and everything. So I think the music for me is really kind of the container that kind of keeps it all swirling in the same pot. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of bubble bubble. You took a lot of toil and trouble spinning all <laughs> of that in a pot to help people feel at home and to explore what that means. Amanda Manden, what a pleasure to uh, explore some of those ideas and meet you today here on This Week in My Moab. God. What else do we want to do besides invite people to the mark at 6 p.m. on June 22nd? Uh, is there a place that we can direct people that might be interested in seeing a teaser or what else yeah. do you want to say? Um, yeah, that's great. I would love to encourage people to come out to the screening on Thursday. I think it's going to be a really special event. And um, there is a trailer available for the film um, on my website, which is just amandacmad.com. Um that's also on my Instagram page, which is at Amanda with a movie camera is my handle. Um, so yeah, you can check out the trailer there. And I just screened the film in Los Angeles. That's actually where I am right now at a festival called New Filmmakers LA. And hopefully there will be more festivals coming soon. So um, yeah, I really, I really want to spread this film far and wide and have deep conversations with a lot of communities. So would love to have folks check it out. I'm going to ask you kind of this uh, rando one now. Uh, what is your favorite Pride anthem? What's the one that Pride gets you on the dance dance floor? Oh, my gosh. That is such a hard question. I'm coming <laughs> first, out. What is it? Uh, I think the first thing that popped in my head was Robin. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, let us cast a spell right now that anyone that doesn't quite feel at home yet or even understand what that means to feel safe in their own bodies with their own identity, understood or not yet understood, uh, Amanda and I, we cast a spell together that someday, some way, you find it. Beautiful, yeah. Thank you, Amanda Madden. A uh, real pleasure to speak with you today. And uh, again, that's Thursday night at the Mark with local queer and justice organizations. And thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Mm -hmm. It's this week in Moab. It's 10 minutes until 6 o'clock. I happen to have an interview coming up in just a little bit about an initiative. Another thing that uh, has received, a, I'm, I'm going to say, a fair amount of pushback and also a lot of people that really push in for uh, legislative action that can take a meaningful uh, attempt to address climate change through voluntary taxes. You heard it right here on This Week in Moab. We'll be right back.
at the Moab Arts Fest uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was my deep pleasure to speak to a fellow named Dave Carrier, who is here from an organization that he is advocating for called cleanthedarnair.org. He has an idea that's ruffling a few feathers up there on the Wasatch Front in an order to try and uh, clean up the air that we all share. Here's this idea. So it's a ballot measure for the 2024 election. If voters were to vote it in, we would move the state sales tax on grocery store food to fossil fuels. So we're not increasing tax on average, we're shifting tax away from food to pollution to incentivize people using less fossil fuels. That's sort of the crux of it. And what it means is that on average, people will not be paying more tax. It's, it's basically just moving tax from, from food to fossil fuels to incentivize less fossil fuel use. And will the price of gas per gallon, it, we're saying we're voluntarily rising yes. the cost. Yes, that's right. So you pay a little bit more for gas and electricity and uh, natural gas for heating, but you pay a little bit less for groceries. And it's calculated so that on average, the average person or the average family doesn't pay any more. It comes out equal. It balances out. If you drive a pickup truck long distances, you're going to probably pay a little bit more tax. If you drive a fuel-efficient car, uh, sort of an average distance, you're going to come out neutral, revenue neutral or pocket neutral. We're hearing from Dave Carrier here today, who's with Clean the Darn Air, and it's an initiative that proposes the Clean the Air Carbon Tax Act. Fiscal impact of the Air Carbon Tax Act is something you were just talking about. Less on groceries, maybe even overall, because it's simply shifting it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I can imagine, however, uh, in a place like Moab, Utah, where you're visiting today and hoping to get the word out about the uh, initiative, that when you're speaking to people trying to get signatures, sign on and this kind of thing, uh, has anybody mentioned how this might be a uh, viewed as a negative for a tourism-based economy? Uh, pe- yeah, actually, a few people have brought that act up. Actually, a high school student brought that up. local high school student and uh, I don't think it will have a direct impact because people traveling through the state will end up paying more for gas they'll end up paying um, less for the groceries they purchase so uh, the the tax revenue will not be heavily impacted by by tourists and it should not negatively impact the tourist industry in the state either because as a tourist on average, you're going to come out more or less even. Yet we are trying to discourage the use of cars. That's right. And so it, 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 the, the real incentive is going to be to incentives, I mean, to, to Utah citizens. People who live in this state will end up paying a little bit, and we're not talking large sums of money here, uh, will end up paying a little bit less tax if they can decrease the amount of fossil fuels that they use. If they can drive a little bit less, if the next car they purchase is a little bit more fuel efficient, if they can find ways to cut the, uh, the air conditioning and heating cost of their home, for example, by improving the insulation. So, so that's what we're just talking about, this shifting of tax from food to pollution is, is sort of the central portion 
or the central philosophy of the measure. But because businesses will also be paying the tax, there will be additional money. There'll be a, a basically $100 million a year for clean air projects in the state, $50 million a year for rural economic development, and a significant expansion of the state's match of the uh, match of the federal earned income tax credit for low-income working families to the tune of about 75 million a year. So we will there are there is money for cleaning the air, and there's also money that's going to reduce poverty in our state, based entirely on this increased revenue that's going to come from taxing fossil fuels. And in Utah, of course, we do have the background of, uh, I think, only recently lifting a prohibitive. A barrier on electric vehicles. There was some sort of surcharge on electric vehicles in Utah, the, revealing a kind of tenor uh, that is not leaning so into um, alternatives to address climate uh, chaos. That's right. That's right. So Utah is not necessarily uh, a friendly state for for increasing the price of fossil fuels. Right. We're a conservative state. We're an extraction straight state in terms of coal, in terms of natural gas. And so the versions of our ballot measure has been, have been before the state legislature four times. It's never left committee all four times. But we think that if Utah voters are given the chance, they're going to vote this in. Lots of people are aware of the fact that on average, if you live your life along the Wasatch Front, it's shortened by an average of two years by the quality of, of the air up there. And an increasing number of people are, are concerned about the effects of climate change, which are going to hit the southern part of this state particularly hard. So increased warming, increased drying, uh, real issues in terms of availability of water. Um, so because of that, we think, and because we can do this in a revenue-neutral way for most people's pocketbooks, we think there's a good chance that Utah voters will will actually approve this in 2024. And what's exciting to me is that if we pull that off, the state of Utah, this very conservative state, the state that has coal as its state rock, will be leading the nation in terms of carbon pricing legislation. So that's going to be a big deal if we can pull it off. It's, you know, ballot measures are always uh, uh, big lifts, long shots. But the stakes are high in this one, and if, if we can make it happen, the payoff's going to be high. I'm motivated to be involved in this campaign because uh, at this point in my life, I'm 67 years old, the one thing I'm, I'm afraid of is, is climate change. It's the one fear I have. And so uh, there the uh, consequences of inaction are uh, as bad as you can imagine, actually. I've been an activist of, at some level most of my life, and this particular campaign, campaign feels like the most tangible thing I've been involved with. This, again, it's a long shot, but there's an opportunity here to, to actually have national consequences. For if, if, if the state of Utah were to approve this ballot initiative, it would be international news, and we would literally be le leading the rest of the country. Because if it can happen in Utah, if something like this can happen, an increased price on fossil fuels can happen in Utah, it can happen anywhere in the country. 
Mm -hmm. So yeah, especially if it's just not even leaving committee. Right. So so the legislature is not big on ballot initiatives in general because it takes control away from the state legislature, and we've got a lot of folks uh, on Capitol Hill who don't want to see that happen. The legislature is also sort of, uh, at least on the conservative side, uh, has a visceral reaction to the notion of increasing taxes on fossil fuels because we are a uh, a fossil fuel extraction state. So that's why it's never going to leave committee, no matter how many times it's put forward uh, in in the House or in the Senate. As I said, it's four times now. Um, So... The state legislature is not going to to make this happen, but we think the Utah voters will. And if, if we do, there's always the possibility that they make substantial changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we think that the reasons that the changes will not be that large, that it would be hard for them to completely eviscerate it. But even from my perspective, even if they did, we would be miles ahead because what would have happened is that the citizens of Utah would have shown that a conservative state, a, a, a state that where the economy is, is uh, in part dependent on fossil fuel extraction, is willing to support improved air quality, willing to support uh, uh, doing things to, to slow down the rate of climate change. And that's... From my point of view, if we can do that, uh, this will be entirely worth it. And the organization is? Clean the Darn Air. And our website is darnair.org. You're here. You're here in Grand County. Right. And uh, to let them know that this initiative is happening. And also, of course, uh, making some friends if you can. Yes, yes. I mean, so... The issue ballot initiatives always have is is the, the 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 bar for the number of signatures that are required to qualify for the ballot is high. In in, in Utah, the, it's eight percent of active voters in twenty six of the twenty nine Senate districts, and what that averages out to is about five thousand signatures in each Senate district, and a total of one hundred thirty five thousand signatures scattered throughout the whole state. And so it's a heavy lift to to actually collect the signatures, and we're always looking for people who might be interested in, in helping us collect those signatures. And uh, uh, for me, signature collecting, I would say, is a, is, is a type of therapy. It's, it's, it's as I mentioned, it's, it is the most uh, concrete thing I've done in my life in terms of, of taking action. It's an opportunity to take action against the polluted air we have in our state, the health aso- hazards associated with that, and an opportunity to take action against climate change. Thank you, Dave Carrier. Thank you. Thank you very much.